a lot of people want to jump on this bandwagon of allyship with black and indigenous people of color about white privilege and things like that and go on this offensive thing against mm. white people being mm. like, oh, you're white, you didn't deserve this, like yeah. white privilege, blah, blah, blah. And I think... You're a colonizer. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you thief. <laughs> and if I was in that position, I'd have my guard up as well. I'd be like, well, I didn't do that. I wasn't the one that colonized your country. I didn't take your land. Kia ora and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Today we're speaking with Anton Blanc, a Māori researcher and educator with a background in social work and education. Through his business Ora Nui Diversity Leadership, Anton works across justice, education and health, developing strategies to address racism, bias and the impact on diverse populations. So how are you today? I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Good, good, yeah. good, good. Thinking about what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So we met during this implicit bias course that you put on for us. Yes. It's been really great. How long have you been doing that for? I've been looking at implicit bias and racism and its impact on Māori, working in the field for about 30 years, but focusing specifically on the dynamics of racism as an interpersonal issue. So I was just wondering if you would be able to define for us in a way that's very easy to understand. What is implicit bias and how is it like different from racism? Okay, so I, I think it's like the iceberg. The bit that we see is, is racism, which is uh, a conscious belief that one race or ethnicity is superior to another or others. That's seen in things like the white power movement, the apartheid government. That is conscious racism. And I would say most of the people I work with and most New Zealanders I know don't fit that definition. So implicit bias, which is more commonly known as unconscious bias, biases that we all have that sit just below the level of our conscious awareness and they trigger our behaviour in ways that we're not aware of. And by calling them implicit, what we're saying is we assume that they are there. So we assume that all of us share these biases. And in training groups, when I ask them to talk about stereotypes about women, about Māori, about Pacific people, LGBTQI people, everybody knows the stereotypes. That's the implicit bias. And most of us like to think that that they're not triggering our behaviour. However, under pressure, they're more likely to be triggering our response to the social world. That's true in health, justice and education. So that's basically the difference. One is conscious and the other is less conscious and more subtle. 
That's right, because um, if you're in a system where everyone is well-resourced and everyone is happy and a good time, yes. you probably won't see things like implicit bias as much, would you? But uh, unfortunately, the truth is that we're living in this system where a lot of people in a lot of walks of life are probably not having a good time. People, we're talking about teachers, doctors, nurses, you know, a lot of people are under pressure and yes. underpaid. Mm. And unfortunately, things like worsening implicit bias is probably a symptom of that, don't you think? Yeah, I think we were talking about that at the beginning, about a sort of a very tired, overworked health workforce. And yes, I would expect in those conditions that implicit bias will be triggering a, a whole lot of behaviours all or most of the time. Like we say, the vast majority of people aren't racist. In these circumstances, when you're under pressure, you are more likely to make these decisions at a subconscious level. Yeah, yeah, totally. So a tired teacher at an implicit unconscious level will think, oh, I just don't have the energy to deal with yeah. the Māori kids today. It's easier for me to deal with the Pākehā and the Asian kids because I'm going to get more engagement. It's just easier. So that's what implicit bias is really about. Yeah, so it sounds like we probably need to tackle things at both ends, as educating people about their implicit biases, yes. but also trying to change the system's environments so that we don't push people into that way of thinking as well. Yeah, what research shows is that people can have the awareness, but if they don't go back into a workplace that supports the new change in awareness, they will revert back to old patterns. Exactly. So it's working with these workforces to create awareness, but also changing the system to support equity. So I did some research into what was happening to Māori kids in schools, and basically what research is saying is... In a nutshell, it's not about Māori kids who lag behind other groups in achievement, it's about the teachers. And basically, what we know from research, and they found in the United States, and we know is true here also, is that teacher expectations are the key to achievement. So basically, students will become what their teachers believe they can be. So that's the good news. The bad news is that New Zealand teachers have much lower expectations of Māori and Pacifica students, very high expectations of Asian and Pākehā students, and that's exactly what we see in, in the achievement data. So Asian students out front by country mile, followed by Pākehā, then Pacific, and then Māori. And I will tell you how they found out about the syndrome, because it's quite an interesting story. So what they did, a group of scientists in the 1960s worked with a group of teachers and said, we're going to IQ test your children at the beginning and the end of the year we will expect to see overall improvement but in each class there's a small group of late bloomers who will outperform the other students what the teachers didn't know was that there were in fact no late bloomers those students were just randomly chosen and when and when the researchers went into look at what what had happened knowing that these children would uh, succeed primed the teachers towards a particular type of engagement so they had knowing that they spent more time with these these children it gave them more positive reinforcement it basically just encouraged more learning so that's when we became aware of the link between teachers expectations and student outcomes and that is called the Pygmalion effect. But they were, they were no different from any of the other the, children? The, no, they were just randomly chosen. Oh, I see. I see. Interesting. So yeah. if you give the teachers the expectation that 
oh, this group of children will get better with more attention and more time, yes. then the teachers will give them more attention and more time and those children will end up doing better. Yeah, or yeah, so Nina's a genius. So <laughs> they will have much higher expectations, yeah. set you more co complex tasks. So there's just a whole different... Um, oh, totally. That's basically my experience growing up in school. I, for some reason, didn't really speak English until I was four or five growing up in a Chinese immigrant family. And somehow I managed to catch up speaking English very quickly. I was singled out as being very good at reading and writing. So I was put up a year and that reputation just stayed with me all through school. And teachers would give me that extra attention, would give me that extra expectation and extend me all the way through primary school and high school. And it worked really well for me. But like you say, it's one of those things where there's a greater expectation on Asian children. Mm -hmm. And so the teachers give them perhaps a little bit more attention and have high expectations and they probably do end up better as a result of that, don't they? They do. And New Zealand research shows that teachers have lowest expectations of Māori students and other students also in the school believe that Māori students are less intelligent than other groups. That's the kind of environment Māori students are walking into. And if that's the case, it's no wonder that we're seeing the kind of patterns of failure that we've seen over the decades. Yeah, I guess if you, from an early age, are expecting failure, what are you going to get other yeah. than failure? Yeah, and uh, exactly. And those those messages are just hanging in the atmosphere. We absorb them through our families, through the media, through other children, other families. Māori children are being primed to, for low achievement before they start school. And, and then they get into an environment where other kids think they're dumb and the teachers think they're not as capable as other groups. And that's not even to include the chronic underfunding of schools in these lower socioeconomic areas. And isn't, isn't that right too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's all, it all compounds. And I'm really interested in your experience because we talked about it in our workshop that there are definitely aspects of Asian privilege and we really see that in schools that, mm. and we see it in the achievement rates for Asian students as well. And and the thing is that you either believe that Māori children are fundamentally not as intelligent as other groups, which I think you'd be crazy to believe. Totally. Yeah. Or then if the issue isn't with the kids, then it's with the teachers and the workforce, which is what I believe. I think it's really important that we tell our stories and also expose how unfair the health system is. White New Zealanders just get a better health service than Māori and Pacifica. They don't know that. So actually showing them the data, that kind of reveals the racism that kind of um, sits in the system. Because I think most Pākehā New Zealanders, they don't question their privilege. And it's only when you actually say other groups don't have the same access to services as you do that that the penny um, drops. In defence of New Zealanders, I do think that basically we are nice people and fairness always emerges when we um, survey New Zealanders. That's a core value. And that's how I think we, we carry the message on the basis of fairness. And my experience, and I've trained, I've had thousands of people through, through my workshops. From my experience, most people get it. When you show them the data, then the penny drops and they know that is inherently unfair. Totally. Like I'm a firm believer that 95 or more percent of people are genuinely good people. They don't want to see other people suffer. There's a, like you say, there's a lot of those people who haven't had that same lived experience yes. as people like you and I. So don't necessarily understand or see, you know, the world through the same lens of a person of color who's experienced those difficulties. And so they don't necessarily understand and might not 
believe in things like they talk a lot in the politics about co-governance and things like that. And mm-hmm. people, there are a lot of people who are vocal against this two-tier system yes. when in fact, like you say, with different such strikingly different health outcomes for Māori and non-Māori, that we already live in a two-tier system. Because yeah, totally. Because people, depending on their race, are getting two different types of service, aren't they? Yeah, and it came up in our in our team meeting this morning when we were talking about the implicit bias work that you're, you and I are involved in, that there, were, there was a throwaway comment in a meeting about somebody being Māori enough to get a scholarship to go to medical school. And the implication is Māori privilege. And it's, yeah, but white privilege is just so embedded in the system that as a Pākehā New Zealander, you're just so much more likely to get into those institutions than a Māori New Zealander. Out of our project, one of the big epiphanies I've had is that, is I think the next phase is we need to work with Pākehā New Zealanders to understand their privilege and and that's the first bit is understanding it and seeing it. So they need that kind of a bit. Then also after that, what then is is the new behaviour and how do they respond to their privilege and the lack of equity that we're talking about for other groups. I think that's a big mm. thing because because I do see the penny drop in the workshops. Oh, yeah, okay, shit, yeah, I see the privilege. But then I think for a lot of them it's like, okay, what do I do now? And I'm not sure what that next step is, but I think that's an important part of the work. Yeah, I, I thought it was really great. The way that you delivered the course and everything was very like a gentle approach because I think a lot of things have happened in the media and a lot of people swing very far left and then they swing very far right and very far left is that a lot of people want to jump on this bandwagon of allyship with black and indigenous people of colour about white privilege and things like that. And I think what happens is that people go on this very much like offensive thing against Mm. white people being Mm. like, oh, you're white, you didn't deserve this, like white privilege, blah, blah, blah. And I think... You colonizer. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You thief. (laughs) If I was in that position, I'd have my guard up as well and be like, well, I didn't do that. I wasn't the one that colonized Mm. your country. Mm. I didn't take your land, things like that. And I think we um, need to make sure that the message isn't that because if we do that then instead of being able to engage in this conversation and Mm. dialogue what ends up happening is we push these people further away these well-meaning people we push Mm. them further away into a sense of uh, defensiveness yeah and i've been there done that with the anti-racism stuff for a couple of um, decades and what i actually realized um, through that process is actually nothing's changing Mm. and i think what i agree with you it doesn't take people with us what it does is people retrench and withdraw yeah so some somehow we need to find a way that we can all move forward together but the other aspect that we were talking about with the project today is okay so we need to work with parker around their privilege and what do they do with that there's issues for maori and pacifica staff which is more around we've been colonized how do we respond to the racism that we experience so different issues for different groups and there's also i think something there for uh, migrant cultures about their position in this discussion and debate because i think the the difference here that makes new zealand unique is we have the indigenous culture maori culture we have our cousins from the pacific and then we have cultures who've arrived here trying to negotiate their way around this kind of central partnership and I'd be interested to know what you think about that. Yeah totally that's something that I thought about as well because as a first or second generation Asian immigrant but that's something I've thought about as well is I'm neither truly Pākehā but I'm also obviously not an Indigenous person. I do have my experiences as a person of colour which is not the same as a colonised people like Māori Pacifica. You could talk about Chinese people being 
colonized by the Chinese Communist Party, but I think that's a, yeah. <laughs> a separate conversation for another time. And I do want to like help Maori Pacifica as much as I can, but mm. also do it in a way that's actually helpful for yes. Maori Pacifica. And I guess that's fantastic. That's like textbook answer. Um, <laughs> but what I'm interested in is how you negotiate all that for yourself yeah. and what it means in terms of your identity. Like, how do you feel about being a New Zealander against that backdrop of relationships? Oh, like, I have absolutely nothing. Like, I, I think it's great to be a New Zealander, very proud to be a New Zealander. I think we have a lot of good things going on. But as Taika Waititi once said, New Zealand is racist AF. And that's something that I really want to work on is having that conversation with people of all sorts of diverse backgrounds. I guess with this podcast, I want to be talking to a lot of Maori, Pacifica, Asian, LGBTQ and disabled people. But I also want to be talking to regular old Joe, New mm. Zealand, Pakeha New Zealand men as well. Because if we can't have a conversation with them and help educate and change their minds and what's the point <laughs> and that, that came up in our meeting today as well whenever i get resistance and training it's always the same demographic it, wherever i've worked in justice education health it's always white men over 50 and i think their whole world view and how they were brought up is all being challenged by all of this yeah my experience is that they are the most challenging group to work with. A sympathiser from that demographic said this morning as he said, I think we need to have our own discussions. And I agree. So it's all of us in our own little echo chamber need to work out what all this means for us. Yeah, I think we need to be talking to people with different views, because if we never do, then we'll just keep echo chambering our way into more and more divergent opinions and mm -hmm. points of views. We started out on this project with a kind of initial framework and now we're learning as we go. So what has happened in the training is that Māori and Pacifica staff are triggered by the training. And I think that they see, maybe for the first time, the intensity of the racism that they've experienced as Māori and Pacifica people and the racism in the system. Do you think that they had a level of, as a coping mechanism, of trying to like not think about the racism and bias that they've been affected by? Yeah, yeah. And I think like with Māori and Pacifica students, for example, when I've worked with them in schools, they sit together in a group at the back of the class so the teacher won't pick on them. That's exactly what they said in secondary schools. And they can tell you, oh, the Pākehā and the Asian kids get more attention from the teacher and more likely to answer the questions. But there is just a benign acceptance. That's just the way life is. They just tell you as a matter of fact. And then I go and say, yeah, but you're entitled to the same level of engagement and you should have the same expectations of the teacher. The system does a good job of keeping everybody in their place. Mm. So what happens for Māori as Pacifica staff is they have that moment and some of the exercises we use, like the doll test, that really triggers memories from childhood. So I've had Pacifica staff, quite senior Pacifica staff, came up to me after the training and said, you know what, I grew up being told by other kids in the playground that I was ugly. And that's awful. That's awful. Could you explain a little bit more about the, the doll the, test? The, so the doll test is a really famous test that they developed in the United States in the 1940s, maybe 1950s. And the one I use has been re recreated for Italian children. And the children of colour are given a black and white doll and mm -hmm. are asked 
questions like who is the good doll, who is the pretty doll, which is the bad doll. And basically what we see is these children of colour picking the bad doll for all the kind of negative characteristics. And then what's really, really profound at the end is that the researchers then ask them, okay, and which doll looks like you? And they point to the black doll. So it, it's a way of showing how children of colour internalise these messages. And for a lot of Māori and Pacifica staff, and also Asian staff, actually, when I think about some of the nurses, Filipino nurses, I've had them crying in the session because memories of their own childhood are triggered, that, that we tuck away. Mm. It's trauma that we tuck away. So the trauma's triggered through the training. Yeah, I mean, the whole skin colour thing is, again, another thing in Asian culture where light skin is very much valued in mm. Asian cultures across Asia, mainly in East and Southeast Asia. Growing up, my parents would always, well, mainly my mum, <laughs> would always be like, oh, you're too tan, you're too tan, you need to put more sunblock on, put your hat on. Mm. And part of that, yeah, good, you know, we want to be sun smart, better for wrinkle prevention and all that. I it stuck with me that my mum would prefer that I had like lighter skin yeah. than darker skin. And I think even when I was younger, I didn't really pay much attention. But I do remember my mum saying something along the lines of preferring if I didn't ever have a dark skin partner because she thought they looked scary. And mm. isn't that crazy? Like, you know, my mum's a great mum. Like she's a, a great person. She's very caring, very loving. You always say it's almost normal for someone like that to still mm. have those beliefs. Yes, I definitely see that in... Asian culture, a preference for lighter skin. And so in New Zealand, for example, we know that Māori who experience the most racism are darker and look more obviously Māori. So for me, somebody who's quite fair, obviously has European heritage, day to day, I don't feel like I experience personal racism. However, friends of mine who are darker and more obviously Māori looking find it harder to get an appointment with their doctor, find it harder to rent a house, all those sorts things. So we know that for the Māori population is true, but also when I look across the world and the groups I've worked with, what I can say is that the darker your skin is, the more negative characteristics you will have associated with you as a group. So you'll have more negative stereotypes attached to you. We're hardwired to value whiteness. Mm. And it's just sitting there in our um, subconscious. We, we may not uh, know that it's there, but it is. And I would say that is almost universal. I'm of mixed heritage. My dad was a Swiss migrant. My parents were teachers, good middle-class upbringing, high expectations. And I have both narratives in my head about being Maori. I know I have the negative stereotypes. They're there. I can't change that narrative. But I have a stronger narrative, which came from my mum, who always said to me, and I think she, she knew what we were up against. She always said to me and repeatedly told me throughout my childhood is nobody's better than you. Nobody's more clever than you. And that is actually the stronger message that I have. And how much difference would that make if all teachers gave that same message to all their kids, yeah. especially the Māori Pacifica children? Just having that belief in yourself can go so far in terms of your academic achievement can't it yes i agree and the thing is that teachers are carrying these negative messages in ways that they're not even aware of because that's the whole thing you're talking about implicit bias isn't it because yes. these are biases that as you explained in your course is that it's at a subconscious level these people aren't going around actively being like you're bad you're good you're bad basing yeah. solely on race it's something that's happening at a subconscious level that 
they don't have the skills or knowledge to to change yet, do they? Yes, yes. And how it plays out is that they spend more time with Asian and Pākehā kids. We know that because we've observed them in classrooms. So they're physically spending less time with Māori and Pacific kids. And why it's so complex is teachers don't know they're doing it and they're shocked when we tell them. But for Māori and Pacifica students, they um, perceive it as deliberate behaviour. So they say, the teacher ignores me, doesn't say my name properly. It's interesting, the whole being able to pronounce somebody's name or not, isn't it? I don't know if this is what my parents were thinking when they gave me a European name of Nina, because that's my legal name since I was born. But I guess they probably were thinking, why don't we give her an English name so that when teachers or anybody else asks for my name, it's something that is pronounceable by New Zealand European people. And it's one of those things where it just shows the cultural value of different languages because if somebody comes with a Spanish sounding or French sounding name people go through all sorts of efforts to try and pronounce it properly Mm -hmm. but if you have a Maori name they're like oh can we shorten that do you have a nickname oh I don't know if I can pronounce that yeah but you know they can for sure pronounce things like Sauvignon Blanc yes (laughs) and and actually and and I actually do think that when they say those things that's overt racism oh yeah because you're saying actually I don't value your culture culture exactly and your culture is worth less than mine so it may sound harmless but actually when you say that you're just being racist so when you do these courses with teachers and you talk about the implicit bias and how that leads to different academic outcomes for these Maori Pacifica children how do they usually respond oh I get really positive response to my training because I've worked really hard to deliver it in a way that is not confrontational Mm. And also we give them techniques that they can practice, which are really simple ones. It sounds really simple, but are really profound. Don't let the Māori kids sit together all the time. At some point, mix them up. Because what happens when they sit with other groups um, is that they get more attention from the teacher. And I can understand that because the psychology of what's going on is when you have a big group of Māori and Pacific kids sitting together at the back of the class, you are reinforcing their status as other and outsiders. When you integrate them, you're giving everyone a message about the value of those students. And I think for teachers, it's less threatening to work with an integrated group than than approach a a big group of Māori and Pacifica students who at a very fundamental uh, level are different to you unless you are Māori and Pacifica. That's what's going on with the psychology of it, is that at a deep level, we are afraid of difference. And this goes back to it's an evolutionary thing. And we're attracted to people who are like us and we're afraid of people who are different to us. That's the key idea in a nutshell. So simple techniques like split the kids up. I talk a lot about their faces, make sure that you're smiling at Maori kids, say their names properly. Yeah, so it's really simple stuff. I quite like the idea of having kids mixed and integrated different groups with different levels and things like that because I'm a firm believer that the the kids who are performing well already, they're not going to be dragged down, quote-unquote, by the underperforming children. In fact, I think what happens in those situations, actually the kids who aren't performing as well, they get pulled up, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. And what research of adults and organisations shows is that actually you get uh, better outcomes when you work in a diverse group and it improves your cognitive uh, functioning. 
which makes sense, doesn't it? If I'm working with somebody who's got a different worldview to me, then I have to put more energy into understanding their perspective. It's going to make you more clever, isn't it? Yeah, it could give you better communication skills. Yeah, more um, empathy. Yeah, seeing people with a different background to you, that exposure is so important. So basically, teachers is where I started off with, and now I've worked with the police and justice and health, is that I see the same passions everywhere. They manifest slightly differently. There's a kind of a different syndrome in each uh, sector. So with teachers, it's the low expectations. With health, which is something we talked about in the training, is is around response to people of colour and pain. And basically, we're just hardwired again to have a more empathetic response to white people who are in pain. It's been proven in research overseas, and we see it here in the data. So Māori and Pacifica are less likely to be offered pain medication. So that's a weird thing in our psyche. And I think it's linked to our histories and beliefs about people of colour maybe being more sturdy. Yeah, because I feel like that is a common thought that Māori Pacifica children are a bit more staunch. A bit tougher. A bit tougher. And that that sort of belief, I try to use it in the opposite direction of being like, hey, if I'm worried that this child looks like they're being staunch, actually, I'm thinking, oh, there's probably something more wrong with this child. Yeah. Like, I th- you know, I've seen... It's a defence. Yeah, I, I have seen children who are Māori or Pacifica who are trying to staunch through the pain and instead of being like oh they're not actually in pain that's a red flag to me that actually something else is going on there's kids who are modern pacifica who haven't quite fit the narrative of what an illness is supposed to look like because the way that medicine teaches us a lot of what we know in medicine is based off research on white subjects so i'll give an example of this child who had a fever and had very high inflammatory markers so we think there's an infection going somewhere and he was going in and out of walking fine and then not really wanting to walk and then walking fine And we didn't really know what was going on. And the family were really wanting to just leave. And this is very difficult for me because I was the only junior doctor on in the evening. And I thought, oh, God, like they're trying to leave, but I need to get them to stay. How do I make them stay? And then basically what happened was it was so busy that I never got around to like talking to them again because they were going to have to think about whether or not they would stay or go. And so we ended up just staying which was great because the next day he was very sore in his legs and ended up having a what we call a septic arthritis so mm-hmm. like a, a severe infection inside his hip joint and I was like, oh thank goodness that he was able to stay because if he left he could have gotten very unwell but this child had a lot of pus in that joint but he was walking through it mm. and so you know you can see that there is that stereotype of Maori Pacifica people being more staunch but I think that we actually need to actually change that that sort of viewpoint to be like, oh, if they're more likely to mm-hmm. be staunch, then more. we need to investigate more because you think that they're staunch doesn't mean that nothing's going on. Oh, something probably is going on, but yeah. maybe just do different attitudes or different experiences with health, they're more likely to try and just truck on and keep going on mm. because maybe they haven't had the best experience with health. You hit the nail on the head. So what, what happens on for Māori and Pacifica patients is they anticipate a poor engagement. So they become used to that lower level of service that we started talking about right at the beginning. So they're less likely to complain. And certainly with the patients, I've interviewed a range of families. Definitely the most empowered parent was the uh, Pākehā mother. And rightly so. Very high expectations of doctors and nurses. She just had a really high expectation 
of what the system should give her, whereas we're not going to see that in Māori and Pacifica because they've been conditioned into accepting a lower level of service. And just probably being in this very sterile environment in a very Western-focused hospital, it, it would be hard to feel comfortable to stay there, wouldn't it? Yes. You wouldn't necessarily feel welcome. Not that anything's particularly like against you, but nothing's very like culturally focused towards you if you're Māori Pacifica in this like very westernized hospital system. Yeah, and so then the onus is on you as the doctor somehow to cross that mm. cross that divide. And I think a lot of it again will be the really simple techniques of smiling, being patient, because a, a Māori patient will need much re- more reassurance that they're on your side. Because they're basically not used to medical practitioners doing that. Mm. So doctors spend two minutes less per appointment with Māori families. They've just become conditioned to that over decades. Isn't that sad? Mm. That's so sad. Yes. That we have a population that we know, that we've been taught at many levels of medical education that Māori and Pacifica have worse health outcomes and they are you know, given less in terms of like health resources and yet people are spending less time with them. That's crazy. Again, it's at the implicit level. I think it's not correct to say that doctors and nurses are doing that deliberately. Mm. Some some are. But in most cases, I think it's implicit behaviour that they're not aware of. And the biggest hurdle to get over is when we're dealing with somebody who's different to us, it just takes more battery power. Mm. When you're dealing with somebody who's similar to you, then it's easy. But when it's a very different culture to you, then you've really got to make more effort. It's interesting when we talk about like the different levels of expectations on doctors and nurses. So the majority of my training has been within Auckland District Health Board, and I've just recently moved to Counties Monaco. And the demographic of patients that I'm looking after is starkly, starkly different from right. what, I'm, what I've been working with before. So the Auckland DHB area is much more Pākehā and Asian population. And there are Māori Pacifica patients as well that I see. But when I'm here in the um, counties Monaco, the vast majority that I see are Māori Pacifica with a handful of Asian and Pākehā children. And I agree with these observations of the patients as that the expectations are a lot higher when you're working in Auckland DHB. Mm -hmm. the, The families have much higher expectations on your services. They are a lot more impatient in terms of wait times and things like that whereas the wait times are far longer and uh, far longer in places like counties monaco and what i have heard from talking to different healthcare workers who've worked across the different district health boards is that they show sometimes they they say there's a preference for working in in middlemore hospital or counties monaco because they say that the expectations are less Patients are more passive. The example that somebody had given me was that if you're working in like a highly affluent area such as Auckland DHB or Waitamata DHB and you tell someone that they've got this terminal illness and they are likely to die in the next six months and here's a referral to palliative care, this response is much more likely to be like, in defiance of, oh, no, like I want a second opinion. I don't mm-hmm. think that's right, blah, 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 blah. A lot more likely to advocate for themselves to be like, this isn't quite right. Like I think I want to you know explore all my avenues. Whereas if the same doctor had worked in counties and had a Māori or Pacifica family with the same terminal illness, they say, oh, you've got six months left to live. Here's your referral to palliative care. The response is usually, oh, thank you, doctor, so much. Thank you. 
Right. Like a lot of more like right. gratitude and appreciation of, oh, yes, I will go home and die, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. That's terrifying. One of the observations that staff have made, and I think is true from the families I've talked to down there, is that particularly Pacifica patients are much more kind of compliant and agreeable. However, my experience was that the Pacifica families were all really knowledgeable. They had really high health literacy, which goes counter to what the sector's been saying for years, is that we need to increase health literacy for Māori and Pacifica. My experience of the families were extremely health literate. And so don't just assume because a Pacifica family says thank you very much that they don't have questions mm. and that they're not questioning mm. your diagnosis because what they will do is they will go home and their kids will get onto Google. So it's tricky. Somehow we need to draw that response and that information out of uh, Pacifica families. Mm. And then when I talk about this example of having different patient expectations and people preferring to work with families that are like this, that's not to say that there's something significantly wrong with this this attitude of like the, the, those doctors and nurses and things like that. I think that's more of a symptom of a wider issue is that you have an area that's uh, heavily poorly resourced, such mm-hmm. as the county's Monaco DHB. And so these people are working very hard to deliver the best care they can for these people. And so they maybe focus on the wins, which is, although I'm working really hard, I'm not able to deliver as good quality care as I can elsewhere. But at least they're thankful for people it. People appreciate me. People at least appreciate me here. Yeah. And it is it is very good to feel appreciated. So I get that that feeling. But that sort of perspective almost angers me that it's almost like it's acceptable to give less quality mm. care to these mm. people even though they need it more. (laughs) Yeah, and it shows you how strong the institutional racism is and how it embeds itself and how, in terms of the coloniser has done such a good job that basically now it's self-policing. And Māori and Pacifica have got used to a second-rate health service education system, and in fact, in some ways, they're perpetuating it because they don't challenge and they don't know how to challenge. Exactly. So when I... I make an effort when I see families who, you know, are upset by, you know, wait times or things. I make an effort to say, hey, I agree. I think this is not acceptable. And I want you to make a complaint because if you don't make a complaint, nothing will change. And I I will say that several times to get it in the head that they need to make a complaint because it's all well and good for us healthcare workers, staff to complain about these things. But if the patients who are the consumers, if they're not saying stuff then things don't change and I think that's why places that are of more affluent people have delivered better health care because they get more complaints. More accountability. So one thing I did with the Māori and Pacifica families that I, I questioned during the research was I also gave them like a little lesson the same as what we get in training and what I said to every Māori and Pacifica patient is whenever the doctor is dealing with your kid you need to be hyper vigilant because without even knowing it, they're going to be minimising things. So you need to be um, hyper alert. Mm. Yeah. I'd be interested to know what your work is like in implicit bias in the justice system. So that's been more challenging to access. So I have done a pilot with the police and we got really good results. And I must say that as a workforce, my experience of them was that they were really responsive and they really understood the implicit nature of the bias because 
They are often in highly pressured situations where they may be emotionally very unregulated and are probably doing things that they don't feel very good about, as in tasering, arresting Māori at much higher rates than other groups. So I found that really interesting. But where I'm at with justice is I've been given some funding for another project, and that is I'm going to interview Māori families of their experience of the justice system and uh, particularly incarceration, because we have very high incarceration Huge. rates. Yeah, and Māori women are the most imprisoned group of any women in in the world. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. 65% of women in prison are Māori women. And when I scanned and looked at these issues, I kind of had an epiphany. The piece that we're missing is Māori family stories, because I watched a whole lot of Netflix docos of African-Americans who've been wrongly imprisoned, and I just found it so moving. Their stories, these poor black families with sons and daughters sent to prison for decades for things they didn't do. And I thought, oh, that's what we need here. Like, we know about the data, but actually we haven't heard the voice of the the people. Because data is just... A number, isn't it? And if you tell people data, it doesn't really stick in their minds. But like you say, when you have a person telling you their story in front of you, then yes. that the, the meaning and the feeling behind it is so much easier to stick in your head, isn't it? It totally is. And I went right down that rabbit hole on Netflix. I really did a deep dive and I was just profoundly moved by their stories. So I thought, okay, let's try and do the same thing here. And for the police, what sort of research have you seen in terms of implicit bias for policing and justice system? Oh, it's riddled with it. Basically, what we found when we looked at the research is very similar profile to African-Americans. And with justice, what's really concerning is the more that you go inside the system, the, the more that the bias compounds. So we're two to three times more likely to be arrested than other New Zealanders. That's for the same offence. We're then two to three times more likely to be sent to court and prosecuted. Once we're in court, we're, depending on what research you read, we're between seven and 11 times more likely to be imprisoned. Keeping Māori out of the justice system is just absolutely essential. And the police admit it because once we get them in, we can't get them out of the system. So, no, justice is horrific. That's insane. And I don't remember the specific, like, relative risk, but it's my understanding that once a child has one of the parents who's incarcerated, the risk of them also eventually being incarcerated is much higher, something like four or five times the risk. Yeah, and uh, the families have higher rates of addiction, higher rates of mental health, issues. It's just horrific. So yes, there's a lot of work going on in the justice sector. I just think it requires more urgency. I think mm. it's yeah, terrible. And yeah. And it sounds like there's a lot of reform that needs to be done from the policing end to the, the courts to corrections, don't you think? And I think the problem is when we talk about judges, there's not a whole lot of accountability, but they have a lot of power. So somehow we need to get to judges because they're the final stop in the chain before Māori are imprisoned. Have you done any implicit bias work with um, lawyers or judges or anything like that? No, I haven't worked specifically with lawyers and judges, but I think lawyers would be a little bit like doctors and that they're well-trained, they're told they're experts and there's not a whole lot of accountability. So that's my sense of having worked with doctors, and I think that we would see the same, if not worse, with judges who tend to sit in an ivory tower and are not easily challenged. It sounds like there's a lot of interplay of implicit bias and all these different systems of 
education, health and justice system, isn't there? That you can't, if you just try and fix one of those, you can't fix the others. You need to fix all of them at the same time, don't you? Yeah, you do. But if I was going to choose one thing, I would choose education because in the long term, that's how we'll really support young Māori and Pacifica to live different lives and live lives that they value. Mm. So we've talked about trying to train teachers and I guess also talking to the students as well about how to work above the implicit bias. What other um, solutions do you see that are practical solutions for racism within education? What's your next point of attack? A bit like health, I think the Māori and Pacific students need the same information. So they need to know teachers will have lower expectations of you compared to other groups. And this is how you negotiate that territory. I think that would be important. I think getting rid of streaming is really important. And I've been told this by teachers, that Māori and Pacifica students are streamed out of academic learning. So I think that's really important. And Yeah, I totally agree with that. In the, the high school that we went to, one of my very good friends, we were streamed between year seven and 10 to top class, middle class and lower class. So I was always in one of the top classes through year seven to 10. And she was put in the lower class and she really struggled with that. Having been put in the lower band class in year seven to 10 is still a fixer today yes. in terms of economically and educational opportunities, um, the job opportunities and things like that today. She was in a class with other children who were labeled as problematic or yes. naughty children or mm -hmm. difficult behavior. She was never that. She struggled academically. I, I suppose when you put a cohort of 30 children who are, you know, labelled as naughty or um, low intelligence together and you've got one teacher, how can you even expect that teacher to make a difference with these 30 children? How can you expect one person to educate 30 of these children and make them functioning adults on the other side, right? Like it's mm -hmm. you're, you're setting these people up for failure. And between year 7 and 10, you've streamed these children to different streams but then as soon as you click into year 11, NCA1, they're all mixed again. But mm. you've now got a whole cohort of children where they've been given different resources to begin with. And they've all got a different set of skills. So how can you expect these lower band class students to perform competitively with these children who have been given all the special treatment all the way through? Yeah. doesn't make any sense. But what she had reflected on was that when we were in classes together, we were in a maths class together and I was high functioning in maths, so I didn't actually need any special attention from the teacher. I just got on with my work and she would sit next to me. And if she had any questions about anything, how to do anything, she could just ask me and mm -hmm. I would just explain it to her and it wouldn't bother me. It's that whole thing of the children who are struggling. They don't pull down the children who are doing well. In fact, it's the children who are doing well that pull the other kids up. And that yes. was probably the best year she had doing maths. She really loved doing maths in that year and there was another time where she was in a lower band class this is in year 10 and we were doing science fair and she wanted some help because she had to do science fair this year and I had this science book that my parents got me and it was a, a book of science experiments and I did something 
for my science fair where I just got like a merit or something and I gave her this book and I was like oh maybe you should do this experiment showing how water tension works and it was a very simple experiment and she did a very good job of explaining it on her science fair board that the teacher who was both her teacher and my teacher gave her an excellent so she did better than me in science fair that year and that just goes to show that when you have in, in my opinion this is a very um, anecdotal but in my anecdotal story <laughs> is that when you have you know, mixed abilities coordinating together that you can actually get these kids who are struggling to get better if you you know got rid of streaming it's better for everyone and when you're talking about grouping problem kids together also what will happen is that they will conform to the stereotype oh totally so if they know that people think that they are difficult they will be difficult because suddenly it's also like cool to be difficult as well within the problematic children suddenly it's cool to be a little bit anarchistic within the school because you've got that reputation from the teachers which means you probably also have that reputation from the other kids in their year as well yeah it's everywhere yeah Right, one last question, Anton. Yes. Um, what is your favourite dessert and why? Um, oh, that's interesting. I love raw cakes. Oh. Raw vegan like a cakes. Raw vegan, like orange, <laughs> like a, a no, carrot cake or something. No, so I'm a big um, little bird ah, uh, yes. fan, and I would do something like a cookies and cream cheesecake or a chocolate cheesecake something like that i'm a big fan of like they had like a raw blueberry cheesecake or something Mm, very good very good apart from being delicious it's really kind to your body Mm, of course of course no 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 baddies no toxins (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) anyway thank you so much for your time anton uh would be so good to hear more from you about your you know other projects and um working with justice education and health hopefully we'll talk again more thanks a lot it was an absolute pleasure Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.